This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Thank you so much for being here and for attending. I hope you're all having a wonderful evening, and it's going to be an even more wonderful evening with this fantastic event. Thank you for joining us um, this evening to celebrate Stephen James and Erica C. Huggins' new book, Comrades Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party. My name is Wilhelmina Quapo. I am a second-year short-form video student at Berkeley Journalism, and I am incredibly honored to be your MC tonight. Aw, oh, thank you. We will begin the night with a truly moving photo presentation from photographer Stephen Shames, followed by a lively conversation between Erica Huggins, Madeline Rucker, and Judy Juanita Hart. Angela Davis, beloved author, scholar, and activist, could not be with us tonight as planned. So the conversation between the dynamic women of the Black Panther Party will be moderated by our very own Corey Antonio Rose, audio journalist and co-chair. Audio journalist and co-chair of UC Berkeley Association of Black Journalists. We know that too often the work of the black women contribute to the fight for social justice goes unnoticed. Over six out of 10 Panther Party members were women, all of whom were the backbone of the movement through community building and organizing. Through intimate photographs, Shames and Huggins' work details the lives of these women and the essential labor they provided to the community. We hope that by highlighting their work and putting on events like these, we strengthen the narrative around the role of black women played in the, the role that black women play and the continue to play to today's date in enacting and progressing the future that we seek. Okay. So this event would not have been possible without the help of plenty of people. Now, I'm going to thank those people, and I ask you to relax, take a deep breath, and work with me as I do that, okay? <laughs> All right. The Hello. <laughs> the event is being brought to you by the UC Berkeley chapter of the National Association of Black Journalists, with support from the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, Riva and David Logan Gallery of Documentary Photography. The faculty advisor for the NABJ is Professor Lisa Armstrong, and the faculty... <laughs> and the faculty advisor for this event is Professor Ken Light. The Riva and David Logan... 
the River and David Logan Professor of Photojournalism in Berkeley at Berkeley School of Journalism. Support for this event was made possible in part by the Photovision Endowment and AAC Art Books, the publisher of Comrade Sisters. Special thanks goes to Jonathan Logan, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation and the River and David Logan Foundation for supporting this event through the endowed funding of the River and David Logan Gallery of Documentary Photography and Berkeley, Berkeley Photojournalism Program. More thank yous. I would like to thank the university sponsors, including the Department of African American Studies, the the history department, the American Studies Department, the Othery and Belonging Institute at the School of Public Health, the American Culture Center, and the... You guys don't have to clap after every one of them. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the American Culture Center, the Department of Gender and Women's Studies. I accept a clap for that one, absolutely. And the Ethnic Studies Program. Thank you to all of you. A huge shout out goes to the UC history professor, Waldo Martin, for his help in reaching out to so many campus departments and gaining their sponsorship that helped make this event possible. Thank you, Waldo. And lastly, but certainly not least, I would like to thank our Berkeley journalism students who are here helping out and ushering. I would like to thank our faculty and staff that worked behind the scene to make this event a reality. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Done. That was fun and painless. Now we can get to the party. Okay. As you, um, so there will be a Q&A portion after Erica, Judy, and Madeline speak. We'll pass around a mic for those who would like to ask them a question after the Q&A with our moderator. So, it's time to talk about Comrade Sisters. To do this, I would first like to welcome Stephen Shames, who is a photographer and co-author of Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party. A little bit about Stephen before he comes up. Stephen Shames used photography to raise awareness of social issues with a particular focus on child poverty and race. Steve's photographs are in permanent collection of 40 major museums, including Museum of Modern Art, Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery, Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture. Steve is author of 15 monographs, including Power to the People, The World of the Black Panthers, Bronx Boys, and Outside the Dream. 
He has received numerous awards, including the Kodak Crystal Eagle Award for impact in photojournalism, for Outside the Dream, American Photo named Steve one of the 15 most underrated photographers. Amongst two others, PBS also named Shane, I'm very sorry, PBS named Wine Wolcott and Shane's as photographers who work, whose work promotes social change across the United States. Steve is, presented, is represented as an art photographer by Gallery Esther Wardrop, Paris and Steve Kosher Gallery, New York, and as a photojournalist by Polaris Image, New York. With that, please give a huge round of applause for Steve Shane. The floor is yours. Okay. I'll give you your notes. Well, hi, everybody. I'm glad to be here. Um, before I start, I, I want to um, tell you that I am proud and humbled to have been, uh, you know, I was a student here, and I was one of the students who went on strike in 1969 to create the first black studies department at this university. I mean, I wasn't a leader, I was just a student photographing it, but I'm proud to be part of it, and I'm going to try and get rid of this thing. I started, you know, Berkeley back then was just filled with turmoil. There, the police were on the campus all the time, and, um, uh-oh. And they, you know, arresting people and beating people up. And, and I got my start as a photographer taking pictures of, of police brutality. I know that doesn't happen anymore, but I wanted to just mention that so that you knew the, the history. Um, and I, I took, started taking pictures for, for the Berkeley Barb and also the, the Associated Press and New York Times and all kinds of other publications. And I took the pictures by the Panther office, which was then on Shattuck Avenue, and um, showed them to Bobby Seal, Chairman Bobby Seal, and he liked the pictures and invited me to photograph the Panthers, and he wanted, you know, they used the pictures in the Black Panther, the uh, party newspaper, and on posters and leaflets and those sorts of things. So Panthers were very, very media conscious and understood the power of them speaking, them them having their own voice, not relying on the government or the, uh, to define who they are. And that that's to me, is something that's very, very important. People have to define themselves and their own voice. And the Panthers were, were wonderful in, in, in that regard. They understood that um, they needed to be the ones who, who presented themselves. And the relationship grew, and I became the, the most trusted photographer who was not a Panther member um, of the party and was able to um, photograph behind the scenes um, in the houses, preparing the, the, you know, the, for, for the uh, rallies and, and the events. Um, 
and get a, a series of pictures, which we'll show you a, a few of them now, and the, the rest are in the book, um, of, of the party members that, that nobody else has. This is a, a unique collection of, of photographs. Everyone could go to the rallies, but the Panthers didn't let the media in, you know, behind the scenes and into their, to their private lives. One of the things that really impressed me were the women of the Black Panther Party. They were really the soul, the heart of, of the party. Two-thirds, almost two-thirds of the members of, of the party um, were women. Women ran most of the programs and some of the chapters. The Panthers were really one of the organ one of the most progressive organizations at the time in terms of uh, the role of women in in their party uh in the white anti war movement there were very few women and and uh you know the civil rights movement these other movements had had women um but I think the panthers did a better job than than the other groups did and and by the way the panthers were also very outspoken in terms of what at the time uh we called gay rights Huey Newton spoke out very forcefully the panthers ran 64 community survival programs and this is the medical one of the uh, the medical cadre who were doing sickle cell testing Again, the Panthers were doing sickle cell testing before the government or anybody was was doing it. It was really being ignored at the time, and one of the reasons it, it got any publicity at all and the government did anything was because of, of the Black Panther Party. They also test they also had many survival conferences where they would talk and um you know, have speeches, but also register people to vote, give away groceries, and again, do, do, do medical testing. One of the things that's, I don't know, this thing is really annoying. I think the FBI has gotten into us here. Okay, okay. Anyway. <laughs> J. Edgar, turn that off. <laughs> anyway, you see how they disrupt everything? <laughs> One of the things that's incredible, the, anybody who's had any dealings with a university, a nonprofit, a government agency knows you had to go to them. And often their programs are from the top down. We have this program. You need to fit into it if, if you want any help. The Panthers were the exact opposite. They were bottom up. They listened to the community, the programs, and the women will talk more about this. I'm not going to you know, give a long speech. I'll let the women speak for themselves. Isn't that refreshing? Um, but the Panthers, in the picture on the right, that's Norma, who spoke at, at many of our other events, in somebody's house doing TB testing. You saw the other picture where the Panthers were on a street corner. The Panthers went out into the community door to door. They didn't require people to come to them. They crafted their programs around the needs of the people. And that's what it really means 
to serve the people body and soul. The other thing about their programs, and I'm stealing this from Erica, stealing some of her speech, but I hope she forgives me. Um, all their programs are replicable any place in the world. The Panther Breakfast Program. You want to log in? <laughs> I didn't know you were in the FBI. <laughs> You're under arrest. <laughs> Is that it? That's, that's no joke, actually, that COINTELPRO, when I worked for the BARB, we had a communal darkroom, and, and there were five of us that shared a darkroom, and I found out 40 years later that one of the photographers was working for the FBI. Can you believe? I mean, even little old me, who is, you know, well, that didn't seem to work. It's okay. Anyway, the breakfast program, again, was before the government was feeding any children. And because of the Panthers, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, you know, in his war on poverty, included the breakfast program in 20 states, including California, started serving food to children in schools. Again, you can, anybody who, was, who got breakfast or lunch at school can thank the Black Panther Party for that. Let's give them a cheer for that. <laughs> what motivated the Panthers? It was love. People think that revolutionaries are revolutionaries because of hate. That's not true. You can't sustain a movement on hate. Well, the Republicans seem to be able to, but we can't. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, a movement like the Panthers can only be sustained by love, love for their community and for all people. I mean, look at the joy in this little girl's face. Look at this one. You know? Did the Panthers hate white people? Well, I don't, I don't know. Look at that picture on the right. Anybody who came into the Panther office of any gender, sexuality, religion, ethnicity, race, if they came into the Panther office, if they needed shoes, if they needed food, if they needed clothing, if they needed a hug, whatever they needed, they got it. There was no means test, no forms to fill out. Are you getting it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. 10,000 bags of groceries were given away at this, at this program, and uh, there was a chicken in every bag. Healthy food, healthy food. The Panthers started a school which later became the community school that Erica was the principal of. And again, I'll let her talk about it. At first, it was a school for the Panther children. It was an award-winning school, and educators from all over the world came to see what they were doing. They were very innovative in terms of it wasn't just book learning. They were also out in the community, and um, they fed the children. Again, do you see the love? Clothing. I'm almost done. Cl <laughs> they had a clothing program. 
you know, this isn't so important in, in California where it doesn't snow very often, but um, in New York and in Toledo where this picture was taken, the community told the panther, we need snowshoes, we need overcoats, it gets cold. Our, our kids, you know, are freezing. Panther started a clothing program, a free shoe program. Registering people to vote, again, walking in the community, going door to door. How, you know, we know how important registering to vote is, and, and we know that the people who are trying to take away the vote for people know how important it is, too. So the Panthers uh, helped elect uh, Barbara Lee, helped elect Ron Dellums to Congress, and, and many other candidates. As you know, Bobby Seale ran for mayor of Oakland. It's a political education class. That's Afini Shakur on the left, Tupac's mom. She was a panther. Again, look at the joy. Look at the, 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 the beauty and the joy and the happiness and the love. This was George uh, Jackson's funeral. And the reason I put this picture in is, is just to illustrate that the women were equal to the men. There's a man and a woman standing, you know, guard. The women did everything. That's Kathleen Cleaver with some Panthers from Los Angeles. We're almost done. On the left is Erica Huggins. Go through the last two. Beautiful. Am I going the right way, Stephen? Excellent. Woo! Okay. Can everyone hear me? Is okay. Thank you so much for showing us those beautiful photographies. Um, now, it is my honor to introduce these three amazing women. Let's hope I don't cry while I do it. <laughs> okay, we're going to start with Judy Juanita Hart. Novelist, novelist, poet, and essayist, Judy Juanita's poetry collection, Manhattan, my ass, you're in Oakland, won the American Book Award in 2021. Her semi-autobiographical novel, Virgin Soul, was published in 2013 and follows its protagonist, Janice Hightower, a.k.a. Nisi, who joins the Black Panther Party in San Francisco in the 60s. Her collection of short stories, The High Price of Freeways, won the 2021 Tarte Fiction Award. It's published in 2022. Her poem, Blink, was nominated for Pushcart Prize in 2012. Her essay, The Gun as Performance Poem, was nominated for Pushcart Prize in 2014. She teaches writing at the University of California. Guess what, you all? Berkeley! <laughs> Madeline Carroll Rucker. Madeline Kara Worker was born in New York City. 
raised in Los Angeles and moved to San Francisco at the age of 18. She was a member of the Black Party at the of the Black Panther Party from 1968 to 1978 and served as a proud rank and file comrade in San Francisco, San Jose and Oakland, California. She credits her family and her experience in the Black Panther Party as her greatest joy and achievements. After leaving the party, she earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree at the University of Washington and a Master's of Arts at Stanford University in Political Science. She is the founder and executive director of On Track Program Resources, a social justice nonprofit agency that has been providing consulting, training, and organizational development statewide, primarily in behavioral health fields since 1997. And lastly, but certainly not least, Erica C. Huggins. Erica Huggins is an educator, Black Panther Party member, former political prisoner, human rights advocate, and poet. For 50 years, Erica has used her life experiences in service to the community. From 1973 to 1981, she was the director of the Black Panther Party's Oakland Community Schools. From 1990 to 2004, Erica managed HIV AIDS volunteer and education programs. She also supported innovative mindfulness programs for women and youth in schools, jails, and prisons. Erica was professor of sociology and African-American studies from 2008 through 2015 in the Pareto Community College, Community College District. From 2003 to 2011, she was professor of women and gender studies at California State University's East Bay and San Francisco. Erica is a racial equity learning lab facilitator for World Trust Education Services. She, she curates conversations, focuses on individual and collective work of becoming equ equitable in all areas of our daily lives. Additionally, I'm not done yet. Additionally, she facilitates workshops in the on the benefits of self-care in sustaining social change. She co-authored with Stephen Shames of the book Comrade Sisters, Women of the Black Panther Party, published in 2022, and is the reason why we're here today. Everyone, along with Corey Antonio Rose, please welcome Madeline Erica and Judy to the stage. Any Panthers in the house? <laughs> hey, hey, how you doing? Thank you for your service. <laughs> no, I think I can. We'll see in a minute, right? <laughs> Well, how are y'all tonight? Good. I'm great. Good. How are you? I'm chilling, chilling. Yes. Oh, we live. We're live. Okay. Okay, good evening, everybody. My name is Corey Antonio Rose. I am a journalist, podcaster, 
and second year audio student here at the J School. Thank you so much for being with us. We're going to jump right in. Uh, earlier, Stephen mentioned the importance of serving the party and serving the community with body and soul. And you talked about this early in our chat. I'm wondering if we could start by going around the circle and saying what define or defining what serving the community with body and soul meant to each of you and means today. Start with you, Judy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I taught at Laney Community College uh, in Oakland. Yeah. For 29 years, and I could not have survived there without my Black Panther Party training. Um, I had to fight almost every minute. Uh, Eric and I were there sometimes at the same time. But um, as some of you know, our our educational system is broken, um, particularly the K through 12 system. So. Laney gets that. Uh, We get those students. So you have to fight every day against a corrupt administration. We just have to say it. You know, the accreditation committees for for both San Francisco City College and the Peralta District have um, criticized not the teaching, but the administration. So... um, Coming to work in an environment like that, you either have to have a backbone of steel or you quit or you leave. Um, I didn't want to leave, leave um, the area. My family is here. So I had to fortify myself and get in there and fight. And frankly speaking, um, when you're known as a whistleblower, you know, you know um, people, everybody doesn't like you. So, so I, you know, you know, we're kind of as Panthers celebrated right now, but everybody didn't like us, you know, back then. And many of us who were not, you know, known, we we didn't walk into any um, any um, um, job situations and just boldly announce that we were party members. However, Laney College was actually a haven for party members. So it was a, I mean, for radicals, not just party members, for radicals. So it was a good place to go during the, you know, 80s, 90s. However, all of those good people who welcomed us retired. Mm. Okay, enough said. I can hear by your your voice. (laughs) No, 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 I'm saying. No, 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 I'm saying everyone understands what that means. A a new new generation of bourgeois, um, 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 salary-oriented um, education doctorate, you know, walk in the door. Where's my parking space? Exactly. Thank you. There we go. But that doesn't matter because, because the same students are coming. We're coming to Laney. So I had to fight. I had to fight every, every week, every day, to the point that... Um, you know, when a new new uh, chancellor came in, I think they pointed to <laughs> to me and to another very good person as the whistleblowers or as the troublemakers. So sometimes that happens, you know. And we all know that John Lewis died saying, "Go get out there and make good trouble." So that's part of body and soul for me. 
Erica. Let's let it rest right there. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you have another question? Oh, uh, sure. Um, well, for you, coming from D.C. and moving all the way over to Oakland to join the party, um, we know we talked earlier about that, like, basically overcoming the fear that you had of the, the struggles or how are we going to get there, what is the money going to look like. I'm wondering if you can talk about being in that moment and having to make the decision of, yes, I'm going to go, I'm going to do that, and what advice you might have for anybody who may be struggling with that now. I mean, when I made the decision to join the Black Panther Party? Yes. And to stay? Yes. I really don't have advice. I liked Carol. We called her Carol in the party, so it's hard. <laughs> Madeline. Um, and it's a good thing that I know your last name, because I might not. In the party, we just called each other by whatever little endearment came to us. And we addressed each other as comrade sister or comrade brother. Sister love. Sister love. <laughs> so I think that um, what motivated me to, to be there and then to stay goes back to body and soul. But that is that I knew that my purpose on the earth, I mean, I didn't have it all planned out you know, the big purpose. But I knew that I was here to learn how to love because I was raised in a community that was not loved. I was raised in a household where love was there and also secondary in a way. Secondary to? To paying the rent or the mortgage. Um, not my, I mean, I was a child, to working government jobs. In D.C., you work for the government. That's why I wanted to leave when I graduated high school, not knowing yet that the Black Panther Party was in my destiny. But I didn't want a government job. I didn't want to be battling um, what, I, what my paycheck looked like. Because in D.C., you got to see brutality every day. I was raised around it in Southeast. Anybody here from Southeast? Hey. <laughs> oh. So you know what I mean. And from a little girl, I saw police beating people for no reason. They were walking down the street. And my sister and I would yell. We didn't know that they could have turned their fear on us. We just knew. It was wrong to let it happen. So when you live in a place that's under siege, you want to make a difference. And, and as Madeline was saying, we, it was as if we were in the Black Panther Party. We were under siege. It was like we were in a war. We were not creating it, though. We really didn't have the power. But what we were talking about is self-defense in the form of the community survival programs. It is self-defense to feed babies. And it is also um, not only kind, but it is self-defense to provide for the health care of people. And our sort of our 
way of thinking about it is if the government won't do it, we will. And I was thinking, as both of you were talking about the school that we ran, body and soul. One of the, when, when I went back to school as well and got um, a degree in sociology, and I interviewed the students who were now in, then in their 40s who had been to the Oakland Community School. And one of the women, when I asked her, uh, trying to follow the ridiculous interview format that's handed out by the Academy for a thesis. I, I don't know how to lie, y'all. <laughs> um, it, it, it's so cold. So I asked a simple question, though. I believe in simple questions so that things can open up for people. And I asked this particular woman, who became an actress, by the way, Kalita Smith, went to that school. Remember her in Bernie Mac's show? <laughs> yeah, she went to the Oakland Community School and learned how to use her voice there, and then it developed over time. And so I asked her, what was it like for you to be a student at that school? She said, that's a crazy question. It changed my life. It made me who I am. It made me the woman I am today. It taught me how to love myself as a black girl. It told me that anybody who told me different was not telling the truth. And it also allowed me to explore things that I never could have explored in another way. The school, by the way, was tuition-free, child-centered, three meals a day. Parent-friendly, how about that? <laughs> and we had a connection with Children's Hospital, and we loved every child personally. We knew their, their full names, their, their, their parents' names, their aunties' and grandmothers' names if they were the ones caring for them. And we knew what they liked. And a hug was not a shameful thing. Tears were not shameful, whether they came from girls or boys. My door was always open. I wasn't really a principal. I was called a director but I didn't pay a lot of attention to that. I moved with my intuition, body and soul. So the way we loved the children was the way we had wanted to be loved when we came from Toledo, Ohio, Detroit, Michigan, Chicago, Harlem, Philly, Los Angeles, Sacramento. We all talked about it. How can we do this? And so what made me stay actually was those children. Every year. Do you know that, no you don't, that parents would come to us begging to have their children in that school. Not because it was a school started by the Black Panther Party, but because of the way we loved them. They trusted us and we trusted them. Parents are the first teachers for a child. And why we don't trust them to enter our classrooms is an assertion of some kind of power and privilege that wasn't set up for the teachers today. Most things were not. The scaffolding of the country that we live in wasn't set up by any of us um, or the thinking that we have. 
or the communities that we live in. So we did something so radically different there. We didn't have a big way of having sports for them, but there was a basketball net and we had martial arts. And we taught the children how to meditate as I had learned to do when I was incarcerated. That's why, because it worked. But it was only three minutes every day. But it made them feel really peaceful. That's what they would tell me. I feel really peaceful after those three minutes. <coughs> so we did whatever we could with the meals, the home-cooked food, the, the way we kept the building clean. We did not have any such thing as detention which is mm -hmm. the precursor to that prison mm -hmm. pipeline. We clogged it. And we also had the children communicate with incarcerated people by pen pals, kind of. And to go inside, we visited the San Quentin Six often. I don't know if you know who they were, but if you don't, you can easily Google. <laughs> I'm serious though, I mean, we don't know a lot of things and as students always remember, it's not your fault that you don't know it. Things were written out of history. Yes. So even though we were infamous, as you, you said earlier, Judy, we were infamous then in the time of the Black Panther Party. Even though I was running the school, I was under surveillance. My phone was tapped. I was followed home. There wasn't any, there was, it wasn't relenting because I was there with the children. So I just want to say that that's why I stayed, because I could see the impact on the future generations, understanding that I came from a generation that didn't have what we were offering. And, and it worked. The whole the human being is not just a mind or just a body. We're all made of spirit. And, um, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about religion right now. I'm talking about the human being, the whole being. And um, that's what rings true for me. Thank you for asking that. Thank you for answering that. <laughs> so as, we've, as you all have lovely mentioned, um, we're in an era now where the Black Panthers are lifted up. You know, you go to the ball and there's a category, bring it like a Black Panther. <laughs> I'm wondering. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> I'm wondering, from y'all's perspectives, having been there back in the day and seeing the change that's happening now, how does it feel to know that you were a part of that? And what do you think young people today are missing that y'all had that might push us forward? Um, I have a grandson who's 20, and... Um, I keep telling him to be very careful about the choices that he makes now because whatever you do, 
it, it registers in your life. It, it imprints in your life very strongly. You know, if a woman um, has a baby at 19, you know, that's, that's a lifelong choice. So um, I agree totally with Carol Madlin that we, we, thought, we thought the world was, was either going to change completely or it was going to end. We had the, we had the just like today with, you, with us having Putin's threat of the nuclear, you know, that's it. We had the threat of the bomb over us then. And um, so, so when we were involved in the party, it was, it was a life or death kind of thing. And so I just want him to be aware of um, any choices that he makes now. Uh, their their life-affirming life or life-threatening, um, you know, what we're doing every day now counts. You know, it's not like we have any, you said that earlier today, everything's moving very fast. Well, that's how it was when we were, that's exactly um, right. you know, 20 and involved in the party. And you got involved when you were 16, I think. 18. 18, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, it's, it's not, it's not a, it wasn't a joke then, even though I was young and I was, I had an immature side to me that it was very exciting, and it was very fun, um, you know, it, because, it, because of the camaraderie and, and there was always something to do every day. But when, um, when little Bobby was killed and Martin Luther King was killed, when these two figures were assassinated within a three-day period, all of a sudden it became very real, very serious. Uh, I realized I could lose my life through this. So that's all I try to emphasize is that it was, it was a very serious movement and what everyone's involved in now, and particularly I just love looking out and seeing this beautiful array of youth, you know, what you're involved in now matters. You know, I, I teach and I always tell my students, you know, to put their, um, their hands right here, put your hands, yeah down really close to your crotch to your to, <laughs> to your generative organs ah. because everything that's going on in our country now is determining what's going to happen to your future you know mm. you so we you, we can't leave anything um for granted you know day by day thank you so much I remember when I first went home, um, my mother was living in L.A. and had some people over after I left the party. I was still, I was very depressed when I left the party. That was one of the hardest decisions that I had to make. Um, and someone asked me, how did I feel after spending so many years working on a failed revolution? Aww. And I thought, no, I, I, I had no doubt that it's not that a revolution is something that's going to continue to go. That's what right. I felt was I was very proud of the role that we played mm -hmm. at that point in time. I think we set a bar for how to um, 
you know, push back, how to respond in a world that wasn't just giving you the floor. You know, and I think, yeah, I think we had, we had a role to play at that time, and that was our point in history to make that change, where we didn't have to get on our knees, where we said we're going to protect ourselves, we're going to fight back. You have a right to fight back collectively in the community and not just die. And at that point, we were dying, as Erica said, the communities that we were living in were open you know, battlegrounds. And at some point, and I think it was just our time because all the things that were going on, um, Panthers showed up at the right time and they made the contribution that we needed to make at that point in history. And I think it's continued and because we see it now sort of, as you said, like an iconic thing. It's something it makes me feel that we were successful in completing what we needed to do to give other people the strength to, to fight on. Um, I don't think it was a failure at all. I just think it was the beginning of a, of a long-term struggle that's going to continue, and you all definitely have your roles to play, too. Uh, we talked about it earlier that it's... You know, it's, it's a spirit, it's a revolutionary spirit. It's something that you take to whatever field, whatever your academic goals are, whether you're in politics, whether you're in med medicine, whether you're going to corporation or communications, take the revolutionary spirit with you and do your best to learn how to bring that into the systems that we're all working in that are totally broken. And I think that's the only way we collectively can create revolution and it doesn't have to be, you know, a do or die. It means, you know, you can die, but many of us need to use our intellect, use your careers, use your passions, you know, teach your children and not be afraid to fight for themselves, I think, and that we are entitled to good health care, good schools, good Absolutely. services, you know, fight for it. When y'all got the book, what was your first reaction? I thought about every woman. First, first I held it in my hands because, you know, we'd been looking at the manuscript of it for quite a while. I want to do a shout out. Where is Angela? Angela Ernest. Could you stand, Angela? You can't because you're recording. She's documenting. <laughs> Throughout the whole process, she's been documenting everything. Uh, that's how her beautiful mind works. <laughs> and um, but she supported Steve with some of the photographs where his photography archives live. She supported each of the women who we had conversations with, remember, um, so that we would have a flow of information for the chosen 50 experiences, lived experiences, in their own voice, primarily unedited, except to make it fit on a page. And Angela was the backbone of this, and I wanted you to give her her props. Yes. speak your name. Now, before that, what was I saying? 
<laughs> You're getting the book. You thought about all. And I the held women. it in my hands, and I thought it's it's real. We did it, because it moved really fast. It wasn't a book that took years and years and years. It took one year. That's fast. Yes. And, but it was time, and it was timely, as we love to say these days. <laughs> um, and. Then I thought about every woman in it. I didn't look inside. I couldn't look at it at first. I don't know why. But I just wanted my heart to go over the people in there, especially the women who have passed on, whose sons and daughters speak for them inside this beautiful book, like Joan Kelly and Jody Weaver and Marsha Taylor. Marsha Taylor, who joined when she was 14. With her parents' permission, I think. <laughs> and, um, and I was going to say earlier, I'll say it again, we were infamous when we lived the experiences that are in the book. And now we're famous. And the other thought I had was, this is the first time. Asali, can you stand you back there? Hi. Yes. Hi. book, Asali, an incredible artist, incredible. First time her art is in a book is this one. And she did the back, how many of you know the Black Panther Party newspaper, like have seen an old copy or something? Oh, great. Well, she did many back covers for the Black Panther Party newspaper, but we didn't get to know her. Do, do you understand what I mean? Yeah. Now you do. So I was thinking all these things, uh, but sort of with what I call witness consciousness, like, like I had almost had nothing to do with it, that it was supposed to happen, and I was a part of this beautiful process, and it was done. So I thought, about the old saying, give them their roses while they're alive. And then the women started writing, wow, I didn't know the book was going to be like this. Because they were getting the, the book too, as a gesture for what they had offered to it. So we have email after email of the women and their their amazement, how touched they were. A lot of women said that it brought them to tears. The stories do, whether you contributed to the book or not. Mm -hmm. And they make you laugh, too. So there's so much. i stop right there. So much. Thank you. Do you, if y'all don't have anything to add, I think we'll open it up to a little Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> over here. They're right here, Corey. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, it's time for a Q&A. The audience, all of you wonderful people get to ask the amazing folks up here a couple of questions. So raise your hand if you have a question, and we will bring you a mic. 
And, and, and a question has a question mark at the end. A question has... <laughs> Absolutely, Erica. A question has a question mark at the end. Thank you for reminding us of yes. that. <laughs> okay, I, I did see one hand go up just now. Can you raise your hand again? I see it. Okay, if I you guys might, go ahead. All righty. Um, hi. <laughs> Sorry, I got really emotional hearing y'all speak, but um, uh, I am working to get my teaching credentials, and hearing y'all as teachers was really, really amazing. Um, my struggle is that I work in Oakland schools, and it's hard. <laughs> like, I, I admire y'all so much, and I guess my question is sometimes, how, how can you show so much love when sometimes you see that these kids aren't receiving the love that they need. And I feel like I try to give them as much as I can, but it, it, sometimes they need love from other places as well. And I'm asking advice as like teachers, like how, how can you do that <laughs> for so long? <laughs> I'm asking more like, when, how do you empower students when you feel like you've given them all the love that you can? Like, how can you push them to feel more love? Does anybody want to respond? I'm not a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what happened at Laney at one point, um, and I was part-timer for that 29 years and went up for full-time positions nine times and never made it. Um, was, it was the best thing for me. It really tested me. But um, one of the chairs at one point said, Judy, I'm going to give you developmental writing. Um, and it should be easy, and it will allow you plenty of time to work on your own writing because these students are in such chaos at home that, um, that they can't do homework. Uh, so just do everything in the class. It was a six-unit class. So it was allowing me to make, make my money, but I got very, very uh, uh, mad at her for saying, you know, their situation is so chaotic that they can't do homework. And so I went in determined um, to, to, quote, treat them like I would treat any other class. However, uh, right away, these students... Um, would come to class with um, statements like, my cousin was murdered last night and I was at the police station all night, or I went to the funeral home um, because my father got shot and he was there. I mean, it would be, it was, it was you said relenting, it was unrelenting. And, um, and I, so I had to come to school then prepared I, I had to widen, I had to, I had to fill my toolbox with many different kinds of exercises because for six hours a week then, I had them. That was it. Um, and, and my chair was right. There was too much chaos in their home environment for most of them to uh, focus um, at home, but my place, that place that they came to could be a haven. Yes. Um, yeah, there we go. So that's what it was. Yeah. 
you know, I made it a haven. And sometimes I had to stay up all night thinking of what to do and look in books and pull out, um, pull out what I could. Uh, what, I, what I learned at Laney was to go into each class with a huge toolbox, you know? I had it ready because I never knew what I'd have to pull out to help, help people. And then I think whatever field we're in, we found that out. Helping, once you get um, some, you get them to help the others. And I always call those students who, who I get up, I call them my stallions. And I, you know, and they lead the other ones. So it's, it's quite a little, little process. Um, and at the end of the, the, the school semester, it's one thing, you have to stay in contact with other teachers, you know, because only teachers know what the joy of helping um, people learn in a classroom that's fraught with problems and, you know, surrounded by maybe an indifferent administration. But teachers know what's going on. I always say people, there's three professions you should only go in if you have a calling. And one is teaching and one is um, the medical field and one is um, pastoring. I don't know. So, <laughs> but, but when you finish that semester, that year, you can tell with your body um, if you've done it. This is, we're talking body and soul. He's been, you know, you can tell if you've done it because you basically collapse. You know, <laughs> my mother would say, "You wait to have a nervous breakdown until you turn in those grades, because you put your body, your heart, your soul into it." So I think when you do that, you know, and you get results. And I see it, see it all the time when I'm in Costco or any store around here, some student is always saying, Miss Juanita, you know, I was in your class 15 years ago. And I'm like, oh, really? You know? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Okay, we have another question. Go ahead. Hi, good evening. Thank you all for speaking this evening. Uh, my name is Renaya. Uh, I'm a grad student in the policy school here. And my question is, I'd love to hear from you all what your current impression is of this new generation of organizers. And if you have any advice for this young new generation of organizers. Thank you. Personally, I'm inspired. I think the challenges of the last few years, it's kind of elevated the issues. I think people have rose, risen to the occasions, the response from everything from the pandemic to the racial reckoning, and it's been a lot of organizing going on, and I think definitely a lot more enlightenment about taking responsibility moving forward. So. I think, you know, the, the struggle is about young people. It's, I mean, we're here yeah. to share our knowledge, to walk with young folks that are trying to find their way to make, you know, to continue the revolution or continue to make the world a better place. But 
I think there's a lot going on right now. I think there's people in a lot higher places than there were when we were in the Black Panther Party that, are, that have political consciousness. Um, I think there's definitely more leadership that has political consciousness than the, the times when we were there. And education, I think a lot of us didn't weren't educated when we were in the party. We had not found ourselves. I can't even imagine what it looked like if we had been educated. <laughs> and, and really, we're using each other's skills in a really you know, particular, targeted way. Um, we, were, we were mostly, most of us, 18, 19 years old. Um, and we knew that we had the grit, we knew we had the passion, we knew we were smart, we definitely were caring, but we didn't really know where our place was yet, what our gifts and talents are. We had not had that part of our lives, uh, that experience yet. So I think it's just really important that we pour as much as we can into the young, younger generations, that you continue to study. Um, and I mentioned in the other room just briefly, a lot of the challenges that we had in the Black Panther Party um, are, were things that we were not prepared for. The COINTELPRO has been mentioned. Uh, cybersecurity is an issue now. The world is very different. We did not have social media. So, you know, I know we've met with Black Lives Matter and one of the Black Panther Party reunions. Um, and I, I mean, little things like they were asking similar questions, but I'm like, it's probably good that you're not as centralized as we were, because mm -hmm. when they came after us, we were together, we got bombed, we got killed, we got jailed in, in mass, but they're much more decentralized in the movements now, using technology very wisely, which we were not prepared for. And, as Erica mentioned, our phones were tapped, COINTELPRO had us in fighting among each other because we were losing trust among each other, but it was intentional. Um, Definitely mental health, substance use issues were, became big problems too. Um, and again, we were very young, very vulnerable, and uh, totally exposed because we were out there every day in the community. That's right. And didn't have the real tools that we needed. We didn't even have the maturity, but we, we did what we could uh, with what we had to work with. So. I'm encouraged because I think there's revolutionaries in this room that are getting educated, that are learning from the experiences we had, and I think we need to infiltrate, as I said, every every you know field, every leadership position, from education to science to communications. I mean, we need to know how to handle. Um, you know, the systems that we're trying to change in a way that we can stay safe and continue to grow and thrive. So I, I'm encouraged. I think, I think the next generation is doing good. Thank you so much, and I'm glad you think we're using social media wisely. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, we'll take two more questions. The, the woman right in the center with the blue mask on had her hand up for quite a while. Oh, where your asses? Where your asses? 
Corey is going to bring the mic. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so my question is, I know at the same time in the 60s, there was the Chicano movement mm -hmm. and the Young Lords movement and Asian American movements. Mm -hmm. And at least in the way that I've learned, I know that those movements were inspired by the Black Panther Party, but there wasn't necessarily tight solidarity. So I'm wondering what mm -hmm. your experiences were with interacting with those movements and how now we can build more cross-racial solidarity to create more revolution and social movements and organizing. Thank you. Well, actually, um, thank you for that question. Um, and we talk about it a lot. We formed coalitions with everybody. One reason we did speaks to what Madeline was talking about that we were less vulnerable in coalition. So it was the Young Lords Party, Ivor Cohen, the Yellow Peril, the Brown Berets. And yes, they did pattern themselves, but they were their own organization and we worked with them. And I don't know what you mean by tight solidarity, but I remember working not only that with organizations that weren't calling themselves activists in that same kind of way. I remember when Cesar Chavez came to the Oakland Community School to see it. Um, I mean, I was so touched by his visit and the visit of many others. So that's how the Black Panther Party got the nickname the Vanguard of the Revolution, because we wanted to work with everyone. And we also worked with poor white people, with Fred's Rainbow Coalition. And that was brown and black and poor white people, um, starting in Chicago but spreading. And so I think you can just do it. You can call someone representing some organization and say, will you work with us on this? I did that at Oakland Community School when we got the heinous statistics about infant mortality and maternal morbidity in Oakland, comparing it to two or three countries in Africa that lived in the most dire conditions, the people lived in the most dire conditions of poverty. Oakland. And I didn't know how, who to ring up, but I thought of the Third World Women's Alliance. It doesn't exist in that form. And right away, the coalition was formed. I mean, like the next day. So it's all about intending to connect. And, you know, we had a few landlines, but other than that, we had pay phones. So look what you have that you can use. And um, you can do it. It's a very important that we align and not be in silos. Because there's where the vulnerability is. But it may mean that each organization has to have some conversation about what um, understanding or lack of understanding might be there about what it means for 
black and brown people to talk for Asian American, Pacific Island, and indigenous people to talk. Do you see, I'm not, no formula, but I'm just saying there may be things there that need to be discussed. And I can remember discussing some of those things in the Black Panther Party. So. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was thinking about, um, well, Huey P. Newton coined the term intercommunalism. That's right. And it wasn't even just the, you know, it was looking globally That's at right. oppression and political systems. And so it, that kind of built around our coalitions here in America. But we're really starting to look at that. I mean, the whole thing behind it is that there's these country borders that, you know, we're creating uh, space for war and divisions and that we should not be looking at countries and nationalities as opposing and based on some arbitrary border that intercommunalism is that we all are sharing the same globe and that we have to work together because you're not going to liberate one little part of, of the United States, and definitely as we're seeing through over the years, and especially now with all the wars going on, what happens in one place affects everyone, the economies, everything. So I think, you know, I think it is basically a construct because we were called the Black Panther Party, that there was some assumption that we weren't embracing other struggles of other people, and that absolutely was not the case, because we had, uh, the coalitions were, were strong, um, but we also worked in our individual communities, because we could do that best. But we supported movements around the world. And I just wanted to add something, because I, when Bobby Seale ran for mayor of Oakland, um, he had a plan to revitalize Oakland by, by having a whole, um, you know, between the airport and downtown, just a center, restaurants and, and all these different groups and small businesses. So the point I'm trying to make is you have the people you have a coalition with, but you also, sometimes on the left, we kind of see other people as they're not with us. And one of the things that Bobby was really good at is he talked to the labor union, which with the construction unions weren't really hiring black people. But he said, you know, I, if I'm mayor, we're going to build all these, these, these things and there'll be a lot of jobs. But of course, you know, you'd have to open your unions up. But he also talked to Kaiser Aluminum, mm -hmm. not thinking they were going to be an ally, but maybe neutralizing them in the sense that they were going to sell a lot of uh, aluminum. I, I, so the point I'm making is yeah. that sometimes yeah. in the left we kind of exclude people who aren't 100% politically correct with us. And one thing we have to learn to do is make coalitions with people who are right with us, but also try and bring some of those other people in. Maybe they won't agree with everything, but maybe you can find that one thing you know, maybe you can find that one thing that they can join you on. And so I think that's something the Panthers understood and that's something that the Panthers did that we maybe need to do a little more of that, that today. If that, makes, if that makes sense. 
also, I'd just like to add that um, many of us who left San Francisco State to join the party uh, came back to San Francisco State, um, you know, re-enrolled, and, um, and then um, the person who was the minister of education, minister of education, George Murray, was fired from his job at uh, at San Francisco State. So we 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 started instituted what was going to be a one day strike, and it blossomed into a four and a half month strike. From that, the Department of Black Studies, the Black Studies Program. And then the ethnic studies department grew. But to answer your question, it wasn't just the black student union who did that. And it was the uh, Third World Liberation Front. Mm -hmm. So we allied that's with right. many, many different people. And that's why uh, we, we were able to start a domino effect throughout the country with Cornell and many other universities then um, do, making the same demands, going through the same process, and changing basically within a, a year or two the face of American higher education. And it's why many of you are here today, you know, being able to major in these wonderful, in this array of things. So um, it has happened. All of the history is not written yet. <coughs> Much of it is still in pamphlets and people's notebooks. You know, <laughs> we, we're trying to get it out. What Erica and Stephen did with this book and Angela, because I worked with Angela too, you know, was incredible. Just not even like the speed with which you did it. I was like, what happened? <laughs> this girlfriend put this stuff together. So, but. Please go back, because you may be the ones who are going to help put this history together so people can understand that there have been coalitions. There have been uniting. Um, and sometimes, it, yes, it has, a temporary, um, it has a temporary unity, but it has a permanent effect. This is, at this point, it's, it's been permanent for us to have departments of ethnic studies and Asian American studies and you know so forth that's that's an incredible result of really the Black Panther Party because we were trained in the Black Panther Party we went back to our universities not as bourgeois students looking forward to making a, a lot of money <laughs> we didn't go back we went back uh, armed with political consciousness and a devotion to our communities. You have the last question. Hi, um, I'm an undergraduate student who does political lobby work relating to the incarceration of black and brown bodies. Mm -hmm. um, I often confront these deep, brewing emotions of indignation, anger, frustration, when trying to chip away at the institutions that endlessly denigrate my community, my family, and my peers. How do you handle or channel those emotions when confronting the politician or confronting systems of oppression? Thank you. 
I think that it... I, I, I just want to clarify. Do you mean how do you take care of yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's an, a beautiful question. Go on that No, I was pretty much going to agree, but I think uh, having been in the party, dealing with these current issues, I, I do political advocacy work now, but how I take care of myself is to stay at it, to keep true to who I am and educate other people and come up with concrete um, strategies that you can share to work your way through it or else you'll burn out. You know, you have to, you have to be true to yourself first, take care, but come up with strategies. Work with other people that maybe have a piece of the puzzle that you don't have until you get some wins, because that's how you stay, you know, motivated. That's I know we did in the party. I mean, we would celebrate when good things would happen, or you know, we got out of a tough jam alive. <laughs> you know, the work every day is what fed us. Though getting up and doing the work every day, knowing it's hard, but pulling it, pulling it off. Excellent. Unless any of you have any last words to add. All right. Well, <laughs> time time was well spent here. Um, did you guys enjoy that? You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 